Welcome to the official podcast of the Hoffeld Group. Your host is the CEO and Chief Sales Trainer of the Hoffeld Group, David Hoffeld. Welcome to the Science of Selling, the place where you get actionable sales insights that are backed by hard science. I'm your host, David Hoffeld, and we are going to pick up our conversation today with where we left off on the last episode of this podcast. As you will recall, last episode, we talked about the two roots of influence, peripheral and central, and they are how influence occurs. Now we're going to dive deeper into that first of the two roots, and I'm going to go and focus specifically on this, the peripheral root of influence. What is it again? As a quick reminder, peripheral root is what is peripheral to the message. It is what shapes perception of what we share. It's what causes people to view you and your company as trustworthy or not so much. It's how rapport is built. Now, next episode, we're going to talk about the second root of influence, that central root, which is the message. It's what buyers have to commit to for them to say yes to your product or service. And as we talked about last time, as a quick reminder, both of these roots of influence are essential. So if we're only using one, as I mentioned, it is like flying an airplane with just one wing. Bad things happen when that happens. So, of course, we don't want to do that. And we don't want to use just one root of influence, the central or the peripheral, we want to use both because that is the goal of our sales process. As we talked about last time, again, what are we trying to do when we sell? We're trying to get our potential clients to commit to that central root of influence, and we use the peripheral root of influence to guide them in perceiving what we're sharing in the most effective way for them and us. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. This is why relationship selling, even consultative selling, which is making a comeback right now where people saying, listen, people should be choosing you solely because of how you engage them, not because of your product or service. Well, what is that doing? If you recall from last episode, that's engaging them only the peripheral route of influence. And in our real world, we want to use both. So yes, you want to be engaging them and understanding what matters most to them and positioning yourself as an expert and providing high levels of value. Absolutely, you want to do that. But that's that peripheral route of influence that matters, but it's not all that matters. Oftentimes in selling, unlike almost any other profession, I think we go to the extreme where we focus on one thing like rapport building which matters, peripheral root of influence, but we say, okay, that's all that matters. That's what I'm going to focus on. Well, hold on now, slugger, right? That's like a doctor saying, hey, your arms are important, so I'm only going to focus on them when I examine you and ignore every other part of your body. But that's crazy. Likewise, we want to focus on the peripheral root like we are today, but also that central root too. Both matter. So we talked about this in depth last week. So let's dive in and talk about the peripheral root of influence. These are factors that are outside of the message itself, but have considerable sway on how our potential clients make decisions. Now, these, as I mentioned last time, are made up of a series of mental reflexes 
or behavioral scientists refer to them as heuristics. And heuristics are essentially mental shortcuts that shape perception by producing a conditioned response, enabling our brains to form a rapid judgment quickly without really actively contemplating what we're doing. So like we talked about, heuristics happen below the level of consciousness. So let's dive into this because it can often be a little alarming when people learn about this, when they say, wait a minute, are you saying that a lot of my decision-making happens below my conscious awareness? And that's exactly true. What the science says is the peripheral root of influence is rarely something we contemplate. And this is why cognitive psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize, he refers to heuristics as requiring, and I quote, little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. And we'll see that in a moment as we look at a few of these. Harvard Business School's Amy Cuddy agrees, and she says that they're instinctive and occur naturally through very unconscious and implicit processes. In fact, Richard Thaler, another Nobel Prize winning researcher, he said, and I quote, heuristics cause people to make predictable errors because you and I are not governed. Our perceptions are not governed by pure logic. What are they governed by? Heuristics, heuristics. Let me give you an example what I talk about in my first book, The Science of Selling. And I think it's fascinating because it brings this to the forefront. Um, one experiment where they asked international travelers how much they would pay for a $100,000 life insurance policy for an upcoming flight. And some travelers were told the policy would pay out if they died for any reason. Other travelers were told it would only pay out if they died in a terrorist attack. Now, shockingly, people were willing to pay more for the policy that only paid out if they died in a terrorist attack than the one that would pay out for any reason. Now, the reason that is the case is in this situation, the fear of people associated with a terrorist attack provoked such a strong emotional response that it caused them to assign more value to the policy that directly address this threat. Now, this doesn't make any sense, right? Obviously, you would think, well, wouldn't we be willing to pay more for a policy that paid out for any reason than one that only paid out for a terrorist attack? But that's how our brains work, because you and I don't make logical decisions we make ones via the heuristics we're using to view the decision. And that's what makes them so powerful because they're not logical, but they are predictable. And these are essentially the rules of influence. So there is many that we could talk about. We're going to go through a couple real quickly, and I'm going to highlight some. So this will be in rapid fire. What is one powerful heuristic? This is one that I talk about in both of my books, The Science of Selling and Sell More with Science. And we've talked about it in this podcast as well. So we'll review it very briefly because it is, according to Wharton Business School, the number one way you can build trust. There's a lot of talk on trust. This is the number one way Wharton Business School says you can do it. And there is over 100 years of research on this heuristic. And I'm talking about social proof. What is social proof? Social proof connects the persuasiveness of an idea with how other people are responding to it. It's why we all are drawn to businesses with a lot of satisfied customers, because we say, well, if a lot of people are getting a positive outcome, 
from this product or service or after working with this business or salesperson, it must be good. Social proof is incredibly powerful. Let me share with you a study that is revolutionary when it comes to social proof, but isn't talked about that much anymore because it happened in the 1950s from a famous researcher named Solomon Ash. Here's what he did. It's called the line study. This study consisted of groups of seven to nine people being shown one straight line and then three additional lines that varied in size. And the participants were asked a simple question. They said, which of the three lines that they were shown was most similar in size to the first line? Unless people weren't paying attention, there was pretty much everyone got this right. It was a very simple exercise. However, here's the twist in this study and why I bring it up. See, everyone in each of these groups, except one person, was an accomplice of the researchers. After going through a couple different rounds of comparing the lines, then all of a sudden the researchers would signal to the group their accomplices, would start saying the wrong line. So you had three lines, for example, one three inches long, five inches long, and seven inches long. And then they were shown one line to compare it to that was five inches long. And all of a sudden, Everyone in the group, except the one person who wasn't in on the experiment, who was actually being studied, would say that the three-inch line in this example was closest in size to the five-inch line. And here's what the researchers wanted to see. Would people go against the group and say what they know is right, or would they conform to the group? Here's what is fascinating. 75% of the people in this study conform to the group. In other words, they would say the three-inch line is closest in size to the five-inch one, even though there was a five-inch line in the choice set. Now, I want to call one thing to your attention as well that's really interesting about this. A couple of years ago, one neuroscientist redid the line study, but with a little twist. He hooked participants up to an fMRI machine that measures brain activity. He wanted to see what's going on inside the brain. When people are faced with this choice to go against the group in an area that they know is wrong, whether or not they conform, what's going on inside the brain? Here's what he found, that when people were faced with this choice, their amygdala, the part of the brain, amygdala, we have two of them right next to our ears, and amygdala comes from the Greek word for almond because the amygdala kind of looks like an almond. It's shaped exactly like an almond. And this is where a lot of the emotions are created or activated. And what they found was when presented with this choice of going against the group or conforming to it, the amygdala is stimulated and it reveals people are going through emotional anxiety. When they looked at the brain imagery, what they were seeing was forceful emotional reactions within the brain that would force people 75% of the time to go against what they knew to be right. And even those who didn't conform to the group still had the amygdala activated. And so when neuroscientists looked at the brain imagery, they said it looked like what someone would experience when going through strong emotional distress. Why do I bring all this up? Going against social proof is very hard. We naturally conform with it. And even when we go against it, it feels very uncomfortable. So, and you can leverage social proof in many different ways. Talking about what many people, just like your potential client, are doing in this situation. Sharing a third-party story, 
even using statements like our most popular option or what most people do who are in a similar situation and cite the specifics as you are and you lay out that course of action. Very simple, very persuasive, easy to do. Another heuristic I want to talk about is the likability bias. What does that mean? Likability bias says this, that when you have good rapport, strong rapport with someone, that you look more favorably on everything that person suggests. Likewise, it's very hard to sell the people who do not like you. So this heuristic I call the likability bias, it is incredibly effective. Now, it's not the only thing that matters, but it it matters. So don't get too excited, but it's important for us to address. This not only matters in selling, but in leadership. Leadership studies have shown, in fact, one published in the Harvard Business Review shown that if leaders are disliked, their followers don't embrace what the leader suggests. They'll do it when the leader is looking, but they won't when he or she is not. That's why in sales and in leadership, being likable is a prerequisite for success. In other words, if your potential clients don't like you, or if you're a sales leader, if your salespeople do not like you, and a lot of people say things like, well, I don't care if they like me, but I want them to respect me. And that just is a, a way to signal to other people that you don't understand how our brains work. Yeah, that'd be nice if it happened like that, but that's not what it's like in the real world. Here's why. When you don't like someone, what does that mean? It means I don't want to be around them. So when you're around them, what are you focused on doing? Collaborating with them or getting away? Uh, well, getting away. Exactly. It's hard to influence others who, when they're around you, are looking for the nearest exit. So we need to be mindful of this. How can you foster that likability bias? A lot of things you can do. I'm going to share with you one very simple one, and that is this. The best way to cause people to like you is to show them that you genuinely like them. How do you do this? Look for something you appreciate about the person. Now, sometimes this can be tough. Other times it's incredibly easy, but you want to look for something that you genuinely appreciate about that person and focus on that. Why? Why does that matter? Again, these heuristics are unconsciously adopted. So when you communicate that you like someone, and that'll come through when you focus on what you appreciate about them, you're going to treat that person differently. And people pick up on that, again, below the level of consciousness. They're not going to say, boy, Bob sure acts like he likes me. So now I will choose to like him. It doesn't go like that. But we respond to a salesperson who acts like they like you if it's genuine. Now, I'm not talking about just trying to fake your way. I'm talking about something you genuinely like about a person that you're selling to. Focus on that. It'll change how you treat them. Something very simple. There's a lot more things you can do. I've written about rapport extensively and we've had other podcasts on it, so I won't go any more into that, but that likability bias also matters. Let's talk about another heuristic. This is a big one. If I could go back in time and talk to my younger self when I first got started in the selling, this would be one of probably the main heuristic I would teach myself if I could only pick one. And it's the heuristic known as reactance. What is reactance? It's the feelings of psychological arousal when we perceive that another person is hindering our ability to freely choose because good decision or bad decision, all of us want it to be our decision. And oftentimes when you try to create urgency, when you're passionately presenting what is in the best interest of your potential clients, 
people will often feel reactants from that. So what do you do? If you want to create urgency, if you want to sell effectively, sometimes through no fault of your own, you can trigger reactants. Let me give you one quick thing you can do. And that is just let people know after you've created a strong business case for what you're advocating for, that it's entirely up to them. And you can say things after you present a choice. Of course, it's totally up to you. So you can strongly present a choice, but then at the end, reduce reactants. Here's what that does. Does it lessen urgency? No. There's oftentimes a misunderstanding of what reactance is and what urgency is. Now, most people don't even know what reactance is because unless you read the science or have read one of my books or are listening right now, you probably haven't heard of this because you have to go to the science to get it. But what reactance and urgency are two different things. Reactance is the feelings of psychological pressure from another person. It's you pressuring me to do something. Business case you make is why it's in your client's best interest, is independent of you. So even if you got hit by a bus, God forbid, and another salesperson came and took your place, that business case would still be there. Reactance is, kills influence. It's when people feel that you are pressuring to do something and they instinctively push back. So all you need to do is oftentimes when you recommend the course of action or you're creating urgency, be very mindful of, making sure you're also reducing reactants. Urgency and reactants are two different things. Do is let people know it's completely up to you. It's entirely your decision. Or, you know, what do you think? I really value your input. And again, this is totally your decision. Saying things like that are all you need to do. Let's go through it a couple more real quickly. Another one I want to share with you, powerful heuristic, the primacy effect. Ooh, this is a big, big deal, especially in selling. The primacy effect is the brain's tendency to be more influenced by what is presented first than by what is presented later. Now, what does the primacy effect do? It creates a confirmation bias, and that affects one's perception of another competing solution to yours. So especially if you're presenting close to a competitor, let's say you're working with a potential client and they're narrowing it down to two options and it's you and someone else, if possible, if they're presenting close to one another, you want to go first. So if they're talking to you today and your competitor tomorrow, ooh, I want to definitely be in the today option. If given the choice, can I get in front? Why? Because I'm going to create confirmation biases. I can do things like with the inoculation theory, which is another way to inoculate people from a competitive message, which I talk about in the science of selling. And I think I've mentioned on this podcast as well, but I can do things to create biases that are going to put my competitor at a disadvantage. I can leverage these heuristics in my favor. So the primacy effect is a big, big deal. This is also why first impressions are so hard to shape. If you have someone who you meet with him or her and you just get a negative first impression of that person, they have to do a lot to overcome that. Now, can it be overcome? Well, it depends how bad it was, but maybe, but it's going to take a lot of work. That first impression, which is formed very quickly, matters a lot. Likewise, if someone has an amazing first impression with you, they have to do quite a bit to ruin it. That first impression lingers because of why? The primacy effect. All right, we're going to talk about other things like reciprocity or single option aversion or asymmetric dominance effect. But what I want to give you is just a couple of these heuristics, right? There is a lot more throughout our training and in my books. This is the peripheral root of influence. And what does this do? It shapes 
perception. It is incredibly powerful. So for more information on how to leverage these heuristics really well in really practical ways, I'm going to refer you to chapter five of my newest book, Sell More with Science. I deal with reframing. And what I do is I take five powerful heuristics, some we've talked about today, most we have not, and I show you how to reframe any sales situation with these powerful heuristics, getting in the loss aversion or contrast or uh, beliefs. It's really, really powerful. So check that out. But what I hope you walk away with today is an understanding of the peripheral root of influence and asking yourself, okay, how am I leveraging this? Of the heuristics that I've shared today, are you intentionally leveraging them? And I want you to start thinking about how you influence people in light of the peripheral root of influence using these heuristics. They are incredibly powerful. And when you use them, it predictably will increase your influence and will help you earn the sale. Next time, we are going to continue this conversation. And in the next episode of this podcast, we are going to talk about the central root of influence. That is where lasting loyalty is created. And that is the message. And I'm going to walk you through exactly how to present it and how to get commitments to that message. But for now, what are you waiting for? Start using these heuristics, leverage that peripheral route. So get out there now and go sell something. I'll see you next time.